Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins, and welcome back to another episode of the Box and One podcast. Today, we're really doing an extension of what our last podcast episode was. We had Dan Favalli from Bleacher Report on to talk about the seven teams in the Eastern Conference who missed the playoffs and what their plans are for the offseason. How can we best project what they will do and how that's going to inform draft uh decisions that their their organizations are going to make well to follow up on that we have to hit the western conference because i'm not sure what separate and equal really means anymore but that is especially what we're talking about today here both east and west and dan favalli is back to join us with it dan how are you it's good to see you my friend i am doing spectacular thank you for having me back i'm, I'm excited to dig into these teams a couple of which do not have their own first round picks unfortunately for them yeah so that'll be a really uh interesting portion of this to hit upon but just to share with everybody the rules that we went over last week seven minutes are going to go on the clock in that time dan's going to help illuminate the biggest needs for each team heading into the draft in the summer free agency what key decisions lie ahead and then we'll try to throw out some names that are in draftable range that can be a target for these teams so seven minutes on the clock dan are you ready to start yes i will say i stole your seven minute thing because we we were doing an Eastern Conference pod the other day about the lotto teams, and I, I was going to have eight. I figured eight would be good, and then you did seven, and I said on the pod, look, I'm taking this from Coach Spins using the seven-minute model, and it worked out. So I'm sold. Seven minutes is seven minutes is the benchmark. Yeah, what is it? Seven minutes in heaven? Is that what they always used to say? I don't remember. I, didn't, I wasn't good at that game. <laughs> you might have aged yourself up there a little bit, too. I don't know when the last time I heard that was. <laughs> seven by seven, maybe we should call it. That's right. That's right. Well, we'll start with the first one here as we're ready to get going, and that's the team with the highest uh, lottery odds in the Western Conference, the 20-62 and 62 Houston Rockets. Jalen Green really came on in the later part of the season to prove that he can be a number one option in the NBA as a scorer. Their other rookies also had solid years. Alper and Shangoon is really fun, unorthodox, long-term pieces of big. And the two other rookies, Usman Garuba and Josh Christopher, showed that they have role-player upside. Beyond that, I mean, it's Kevin Porter Jr. and Christian Woods. Christian Wood, excuse me. Two enigmatic pieces, polarizing figures within the Houston Rockets community. Talented, but kind of questionable fits when you're trying to put them together with their, their kind of position mates, right? Porter and Green are a little bit redundant. Wood and Shengun leave a little bit to be desired in terms of their versatility. So I'm just going to ask you this flat out first, Dan. What should happen with Christian Wood and Kevin Porter Jr.? What's the pathway forward for the Rockets to optimize the group that they have? I think it's probably to get rid of both of them. I'm mostly fine with Christian Wood staying there if they want to uh, keep him. But you do have to worry about his next contract. And that's when we talk about timelines. That's what we mean is you don't want to get into a, a massive contract too soon before you're competitive. And Kevin, Kevin Porter Jr., you said it, I think is redundant with Jalen Green and just the experiment with him at point guard. Towards the end of last season, I, I thought I saw something there. And then going through this season, I felt like I saw less and less and less of that. And so I think very clearly, like, you need to get a truer floor general in there. And he's Kevin Porter Jr. is just certainly not it. Look, I don't believe in the term empty calories, right? I think anything you can do to produce is beneficial for the team that you're on. But I also think there is something to be said for being a guy who can put up a lot of impressive stat lines and numbers on losing teams. But when it comes down to, okay, maybe I got to make that extra pass or sacrifice a little bit more or just have my role where I'm spotting up in the corner because it's that guy's turn to create with a mismatch. 
you have to be able to do that stuff and embrace that role too. And that's where Porter has kind of fallen short with me. And I'm much more tantalized by Jalen Green and his upside to say, I think it's probably, I agree with you, it's probably worth the Rockets exploring. What can they do to cash out on Porter now to make sure that there's nothing that could impinge on Jalen Green's development over the long run? Um, you know, look, I, I think that rebuilding processes are challenging. As, as we all know, you can get a lot of really good B-plus players and then you talk yourself out of taking other guys because you want to build around them and they're not necessarily worth it, right? That's always the challenge with a rebuild is you get a guy who comes in, sets the world on fire, maybe a little bit earlier in their career than you would have thought. And now all of a sudden you're planning your organization with them in mind and you might miss out on somebody else who's better than the guy that you're trying yeah. to build around. And, I, want, I was going to say, I wonder if it's easier for them to move away from that because he was sort of found of money. Just it, they didn't burn top draft equity to get him. And so in theory, it should be easier to make what is, you know, it's a fairly awkward decision to be like this guy, maybe if you wanted to bring him off the bench is sort of like this microwave sixth man, but that also might be the role that Josh Christopher is best suited for that. That guy's confidence is aspirational. So I love Josh Christopher. And so I just think, you know, what's just a little bit different because I feel like he can be slightly more plug and play the defense with him and Shangun just isn't going to be good. And my, my real take is they need to trade whoever it is they need to trade to open up minutes for Usman Garuba. I was just so disappointed that he wasn't used at all this season. You sold me on him last year, pre-drafts. I watched him, that guy, I feel like he's going to be just like a defensive nightmare. Yep. I, I agree with that. And, and, you don't draft both Shangun and Garuba to not see if they can ever work together. Right. And, and that's kind of what the Rockets did this year. They never really found out if you can play those two guys together at the four and the five, but you know, the interesting part of what I was saying earlier, it, you took that for Kevin Porter jr. Of not wanting to draft somebody over who you have that you might miss on somebody that's really good. I think that that goes a little bit more for Shangun in this draft class because if you look at the top three picks and the guys that are projected, Paolo Bancaro, Jabari Smith, Chet Holmgren, all front court guys with really different skill sets, but guys that play more of the four and the five. I don't really know what to do with the Rockets front court that they drafted last year because we never got to see Shengun and Garuba together to know how good that pairing can be. And now if they end up with a top three pick, it's highly likely that they add another bigger body to the mix. So like, is, is there, you've watched a lot of Shengun, I know. Is there one type of player who you think can fit best with him in the front court stylistically? Is it more of a, a shooter, more of a defender? Like what's the best way to find a front court fit that goes with what they already have? I think it needs to be like a really mobile defender. And I was actually a little bit surprised at how on, I'll say on certain possessions, how mobile Shengun was just when he was set defensively, but I just don't think that you can play him as your, if, whether it's like a, you know, a smaller four or if it's an actual big, he's playing alongside. I don't think he can be like your primary big and you're going to have a league average or better defense, unless you're really just like loaded on the perimeter. And so if you're going to pair him with someone who's has more size, like, yeah, the floor spacing, or if someone's a really good cutter and can move without the ball, just because he is such an instrumental passer, that could be useful, but his greatest weakness is still going to be on the defensive end. And so whoever you pair him with in the front court, whatever size they are, I think needs to be like, I don't want to say transcendent, but really good on that. End. And that's why I didn't think about this before we said it. That's why it's kind of disappointing. We didn't see 
Garuba and him play together. I don't even know. I haven't looked at the lineup data. I don't know if they played any minutes together with the with the big club this season. Yeah, yeah, they, and they really they really need to. Uh, if they didn't this year, they have to in year two just to see what they have. So for Rockets fans, the reason I, I bring some of that up, uh, Paolo Bencaro is the top player on our draft board. I think he's going to stay that way. He's somebody that is a transcendent offensive piece. He and Shen Goon are probably the worst fit together of the top three big guys in this draft. I think Jabari Smith makes a lot of sense as a pick and pop stretch four next to Shen Goon and somebody who tests out decently on, on on-ball defense on the perimeter. Chet Holmgren is that guy defensively that can mask a lot of mistakes just with his length, his overall defensive instincts, the versatility that he plays with. That would be a really scary defensive front court to have those two together. But the reason I say you don't turn down an A-plus player because you have a B-plus guy already in your hand. If Paolo is the guy that they think is the best player in this draft and they're able to get him, they should still take him. He's going to be better than Shengun in the long run. You can't just be tied down to, man, we really like the center. He's a great passer. He's a fun player to watch. Van Caro's going to be better. Take whoever you can out of those opportunities and then make the rest of the front court work around it over the long term. Uh, and, and maybe one of the vehicles to do that, Dan, and this is the last point we'll make here on the Rockets, they have not necessarily dead money, but two guys on their uh, on their books in Eric Gordon and John Wall, who they're not really going to maximize a lot out of. Is, is there a market for either of them this year to, to try to move on or, or make some sort of a, a deal? Like what what's the future lie ahead for the Rockets kind of clearing their books a little bit? Yeah, I don't know expiring there's no contract that's immovable but like russell westbrook john wall's contract is so massive in that final year that it makes it difficult to move unless you're taking like what deal is worse than even john wall's single salary because you would have to combine like two or three players to get rid of it uh, maybe if there's a team that wanted to get off a julius randall type deal and was willing to eat up one year of john wall yeah wink wink what's up leon rose if you're listening um <laughs> but It'd be tough for me to see that ending in anything short of a buyout. I would be, I would be fairly surprised. Eric Gordon was low key, ridiculously good this year. Just looking at what he was doing with his shooting and his finishing on drives. I was shocked that they didn't move him at the deadline, apparently because no one wanted to give up a first round pick for him. I know his injury history. I know there's like that third, like non-guaranteed year in his contract. I don't care about paying Eric Gordon 20 plus million in two years if I won the championship, because that's when it becomes guaranteed is if he's an all-star or they win the championship. I would expect him to get moved because there are just, when we we talked about the shallow free agent market last time, I think teams are going to be hungrier in trades. And I do feel like if he's healthy, which he was for most of this season, like he's a difference maker. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So uh, the way I can per, per kind of forecast a lot of this playing out, if the Rockets get the number one overall pick and take Bancaro, they've got to make a move to get more of a vertical athlete rim protecting center in there. I think you can package Shen Goon and Eric Gordon and get a couple other picks and or a really good rim protector to go with it and somebody that another team might be selling. So don't necessarily know who that might be, but Shen Goon strikes me as one of those guys who really, really good, going to have a ton of suitors that like him around the league. But if the Rockets know they can't play him and Bancaro together and they make the decision to go with Paolo, now might be the time to move on. Yeah. I mean, that's it. We don't see teams make that decision with players on rookie scales that they tend to like in Shen Goon. But if you wind up with Bancaro, I would suggest I would endorse doing that 100%.
All right. Oklahoma City Thunder are another one of those really intriguing rebuilding stories right now. 24 and 58 this year. And that was way more uh, of a success story than we thought that they'd have coming into the season. At the end of the year, they did put the the tank breaks on and, and try to skid to the finish line to ensure that they stayed in that top four. Uh, but they have really intriguing pieces here. Shea Gilgis Alexander is a superstar in the making. Josh Giddy had a really good rookie season uh, as a fantastic passer as a 6'8 point guard. And they struck gold in the second round with Trey Mann and, and Jeremiah Robinson Earl, like two really good players, as well as that unique guy and Alexi, Alexa Pokashevsky. Like, what do you make of him? I have no idea. Love here's him. The, here's the thing with the Thunder, though. They don't really have any young bigs that are worth building around. So, Dan, this is kind of a, a philosophical question as much as anything, right? I, I'm a big believer that in order for guards to develop at the right level in the NBA, they need to be surrounded by NBA caliber talent. That's spacing. That's, you know, good screeners who can roll to the rim, rim protectors on the other end. That's the only way to really evaluate if they can play championship level basketball. If both Giddy and Shea Gilgis-Alexander as a pairing in the backcourt can and will coexist in the future. Don't we need to see them with a center, somebody that can protect the rim, somebody that's going to be of the caliber that you can pair with them in a playoff setting, at least in the next year or two? For sure. And I think I would argue you could say the same thing about surrounding them with more shooters so that the offense has like, you know, less of a clumpy feel to it at points. And I think we saw that specifically impacted Josh Giddy as a rookie when you're talking about him as a finisher and scorer, but also just, I think it started to wear on Shea Gilgis-Alexander a little bit this too, uh, this year too, but I'm with you on the big. I mean, we saw JRE was great, but like he had to play a lot of center this year. And I don't really know if that's where you want him long-term um, Poku just is a string bean. He can't be at center. He's a wing basically is what he is. And you're right. They don't have that long-term prospect there, which is why I'm curious to see, you know, they, they would be a great fit for like, basically just name the big, like from these top three, they'd be a great landing spot. But I'm just curious if they don't wind up with one of those guys, would they do something in free agency or trade not to go out and get like a current star, but to actually address that sort of hole. I will say I was impressed. And what gives me reason to like, I guess what they've sort of done there, their defense was a lot better than I expected. And they were pretty good at limiting shots at the rim and then contesting shots at the rim too. And to do that without sort of a true center, makes me wonder like, oh, well, what if you actually put someone in the middle who makes more functional sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that Sam Presti is building a roster based on kind of length at every single position. Uh, that's what Giddy, Shagadis, and Gilgis Alexander, Pokashevsky, they all really have in common. Uh, they have three first round draft picks this year. They've got the 14th pick from the Clippers, if the lottery holds. They've got 30 uh, at the end, end of the first round from Phoenix and their own pick, which could end up being, you know, one of the top one or two in this draft based on how the, the ping pong balls fall. But I think they're going to be able to address the center position at any of those spots. It'll just be fascinating to see how they prioritize shooting, you know, rim protection and size on the interior, and then just taking another swing because they have so many damn future first round picks. Like, when you have that type of future protection, those are the times you should be swinging aggressively on high upside picks. So I'm going to ask you that question here, Dan, like what should they prioritize most size and finishing three point shooting and floor spacing, or just another really high upside swing? Like what's the biggest priority if you're Sam Presti? 
So I feel like I'm going to catch a lot of crap for this one. I think it's the latter because I'm not entirely sold on Josh Giddy as that guy. And you need the running mate for Shea Gilders Alexander. And I think Josh Giddy's passing was just absolutely absurd this year. And like you said, his size helped him a little bit on defense and he was a really good rebounder for his position. But I just, as someone who doesn't seem like he wants to score and then to finish the season on like sub 50 true shooting, again, it's just a rookie. I need more outcome variance there um, when I'm trying to project ahead with Shea Gilgis-Alexander. If it wasn't going to be that, I still might just lean floor spacing because it's not that I'm low on the center position. I just feel like that's what Shea and even Josh Giddy are going to need the most around the moving forward, just looking at how well, I won't say how well, but how much better than expected the Thunder were able to sort of piecemeal together some aspects of their defense this season. And you kind of, answered a little bit in there my next thought or question which is can the giddy sga backcourt really coexist like on a scale of one to ten how optimistic are you about that being something that can make the playoffs or win a playoff series in the future i'm not i'm not super optimistic and i think it's just because like what is josh giddy without the ball because you take away his passing which is his single most important skill. And I do believe that Shea Gilgis Alexander can be a fine set shooter down the line. Someone who can move away from the ball from him too. But like not, not, neither of these guys, the way they play are necessarily wired to do that. It's not even as like, again, it's, I come back to what is Josh Giddy during those possessions where he doesn't have the ball. He needs to turn into a very respectable and higher volume three point shooter. I think for that to work out long-term to, to the degree that the thunder can call them their two primary cornerstones. Yeah. And, like Giddy was, I'm just looking it up right now on Synergy Sports, 22.8% this year on catch and shoot looks. And that's when you have a superstar in the making and a guy like Gilgis Alexander, that's not the right type of backcourt mate to necessarily have him run with. Now, again, he's a rookie. He has time to develop some of that jump shooting stuff. And I think it'd be a little premature to bail on somebody like him. But I really found that pick fascinating. Like, to some degree, I think Giddy has it. Like he can be a really special playmaker with the ball in his hands. But the pairing of those two, something is just kind of slightly off there. Um, which again, another segue into the final question that I would have for you on the Thunder. Like, is there such a thing as too many young players trying to earn minutes on one team? Because how much do you really know who just looks good by comparison with each other? and who is really going to have staying power in the NBA. And somebody inevitably is always going to fall through the cracks and not get enough of an opportunity to develop. Yeah, I mean, the Thunder seem to take care of that by just punting on the latter third of their season each year. But yeah, I think that's a fair concern, especially when you're not, you know, we're talking about, you know, it doesn't have to be a conventional team building construct, but we're talking about not seeing them in the right environs if there's not enough shooting and floor spacing or if there's not that big to so we can see how, Josh Giddy and, and Shea Gilders Alexander look in like more of an orthodox pick and roll setting. I think for sure that that can absolutely matter. And there is there also just like there's at a point where they just can't house all these guys. If you even look at their books, there's going to be 13 to 15 players who, who should just be under contract next year. And they have three first round picks. You could do the math, like at least one of those picks or at least one of the players from this roster is going to have to go. And so I'll, be, I'll just be interested to see what sort of consolidation moves they make or is there like any draft and stash opportunities that they tilt towards because that's another thing they have to factor is just the sheer body count that they have under their control not just this draft but like in all the future drafts ahead yeah i wonder if they could do like a what is it josh Hustis? was that the guy who signed almost directly with the g league team or deferred his nba right yeah i haven't heard that name in a while maybe they could do something like that 
Shout out Josh Eustis, a real one right there. All right, Dan, we're, we're moving to the team that I think is most fascinating in the Western Conference. That's the Portland Trailblazers, 27-55. Uh, and 55. They perfected the midseason tank. Lost their last 11 games, really increased those lottery odds. They traded away C.J. McCollum, but they still have the most valuable asset in the Western Conference of any non-playoff team, and that's bonafide superstar Damian Lillard. There's a lot of moving pieces, particularly with their front court. Yusuf Nurkic is going to be a free agent. The rest of the roster is kind of fairly depleted right now with, uh, with playoff experience and talent. I think Anthony Simons looks like a quality piece, and I'm intrigued by the young athletes of Nasir Little and Keon Johnson. But the rest of the roster is, is kind of fairly bare bones. So let's try to fix this issue, you and I, and get the Blazers back to prominence and see how quickly this can work. Dan, take us through the cap mechanics, right? The space, the trade avenues, et cetera, that's available for Portland to quickly rebuild this thing around Dame. So I have them with the ability to get, if they really want cap space, around $24, $25 million in spending power. That's not insignificant, especially in this market. Who are you spending it on? I think it's more valuable that they have that it's basically a Jeremy Grant size trade exception. Like we know how the trade exceptions work. You could take back just the single player making hundred K more than the trade exception. I think Jeremy Grant salary works out to like $60,000 cheaper under those terms. Um, does that bring the Blazers back to prominence though? And I think the route here, you definitely keep Simons because the fact that he was so good after they blew it up um, when his role got more difficult and he was playing alongside less talent, that's a big deal to me. I also, just a quick shout out, like you want to talk about tanking. They somehow traded CG McCollum, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, and Larry Nash Jr. without getting back a first round pick in this draft because of the way um, what ended up happening with the Pelicans trade and like how those, those picks were conveyed. That's a disaster, I would call it. I know, I know what the aim was. I don't know what they're going to do with the flexibility. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, if you're actually committed to rebuilding around Damian Lillard, it's not keeping your draft pick this year. It's seeing what you can put on the trade market and attach to that draft pick, like what opportunities are going to arise. And I think the one that's going to become most popular. And I, I just want to make clear, I would not support doing this, but if you are committed to Damian Lillard's timeline, Damian Lillard is 32. Like, does he have time to wait for a top six, top seven prospect to develop? It's the Rudy Gobert noise is going to grow loud here. They're the team that I think is going to be linked to him a ton. Are you giving up that pick? And it'd have to be other stuff. But like, are you giving up that pick to get Rudy Gobert? And even if you're aiming for a smaller move, I'm just going to turn the tables back on you because I spent a lot of time thinking about the Blazers. What are you even giving up? Like you're, the way that your pick is protected to uh, Cleveland at this point, or is it Chicago? It's like protected till the end of time through the lotto. And so like, you can't necessarily guarantee the conveyance of a pick there. So if you're not going to move this year's pick, it gets really difficult to attach enticing assets to any sort of deal, even when you cobble together the necessarily salary matching. So I think they are kind of boxed into a corner. And if you're not willing to move that number six pick, I do think despite what he says, despite what they've said, like the Damian Lillard trade rumors, they're coming. If the Blazers aren't willing to me to move that number, I keep calling the number six pick, like the lottery's already played out. If they're not willing to move that pick. Well, I think no team is more at the mercy of how the ping pong balls bounce than Portland, right? Because if that rises up and becomes a top two or three pick, that drastically changes the value it'll have in the trade market for somebody like a Rudy Gobert, if that's the possibility. 
I wouldn't be shocked, like you said, if, if they have to just use that to try to get a Jeremy Grant and fit some of that into the trade exception. Like that's a lot to give up. I'm sure they'd you know, have to take something a little bit more back to sweeten some of that deal. Uh, but man, like that's, you're right. As, as we're thinking about it, it's not just that the roster is bare bones. It's that the other avenues that they can use to explore, to improve the roster are a little bit depleted and, and are really going to, um, to stretch them out, which has to bring us to Yusuf Nurkic, right? Like, do you sign and trade him? Do you try to keep him just because you can go over the cap to, to bring him back? Like, I, I know it's been a little bit of a rocky couple of years with Nurkic in Portland, but is he just better than anything they can immediately get other than a Rudy Gobert seismic trade that they would make to the point where you kind of have to bring him back at this point? Yeah, I, I, I think you laid it out perfectly. It's like if it's a Rudy Gobert, maybe they would be a team that'd be a good fit for Miles Turner if he becomes available again. And perhaps he's used in either one of those scenarios, those teams that are moving their bigs might want a big in return. Maybe that's where Nurkic sign and trade comes into play. I know that needs the cooperation of the player, but you look at this year's market, the teams that have money to spend, they're most likely not going to be spending it on bigs. And so if I'm the Blazers and I'm not using him as part of a sign and trade, you, you have to bring him back. And I'm just going to assume that it'll be at a semi-reasonable number you could turn around and, and move later if it comes to it. And it's not like he wasn't, this year was weird for him, but like he, he finished the season for himself, like really strong. And you know what you're going to get from him on offense. He probably becomes a little bit more important on offense too, without CJ McCollum there. I know Anthony Simons really juiced up his passing when we saw his role increase, but you know, you've kind of consolidated your offensive options there still. Um, so he's a useful player, but like him, Josh Hart, Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons, as your those are the core pieces of this plus that, that pick I just, and you're mentioning like giving up a top seven pick for Jeremy Grant. Like, I, I don't even think you're wrong. I'm just like, what, what did they pivot into? And maybe they have, we have to see what they do with all this flexibility, but I, I don't, if they have a vision, I just, I don't see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and look, relating to the draft, if they don't end up moving up a little bit further and they're stuck in that six to seven, six to eight range, I think long-term, if they can have patience, a big man like Jalen Duran would be great for them. I really think that he's got the right type of upside to be a rim-protecting center and almost a DeAndre Ayton-ish piece if you can be patient and let a big man develop over the course of one or two years. That doesn't necessarily jive with the Damian Lillard window, right? If they need to make to keep the pick and make something a little bit more immediate impact, I think Keegan Murray out of Iowa, who can come in and play the four right away, really stretch the floor, just a good score overall, good feel for the game, has a lot of fans in analytical circles. I think he makes sense to just finally be that four-man. That's one thing we haven't seen Portland have is an offensive-minded scoring four in the years that really uh, since LaMarcus Aldridge has left. So uh, they've got a decision to make, whether it's short-term or long-term or what they really do with the pick in that regard. But regardless, Dan, can they really keep Damian Lillard and put together a team that's going to convince him to stay there through the, the waning years of his prime? Or is this kind of the, the writings on the wall of Portland smart, they're going to be proactive about getting out and doing Dame right right now. Yeah. I think it should be the latter based off what we're saying. I'm just curious because we know he wants that two-year max extension. Is he just willing to go through a rebuild and be a Blazers lifer at least for the time being so that he gets that extension and maybe there's, you know, they've sort of come to terms that, they're going to keep this pick wherever it lands. And he's prepared to maybe sit, not, you know, sit through it for another year or two to see where they're at. I think that probably nukes his trade value, even if he's still under contract. 
I was actually going to ask you, like, if you're Portland and the plan right now is to maximize Damian Lillard's window, if you wind up with the, I'm going to say the first or second pick, because I think it would be a Chet Holmgren or Paolo is the player that would make you rethink this. What would it, like, are those players good enough or at prospects for the Blazers themselves to be the ones that would initiate um, just sort of a, a retinkering of the timeline? Because I think we're all operating under the assumption that this is not going to end until Dame wants it to. And I'm just curious as to if you land the number one pick or the number two pick and you're Portland, is that enough of a launching pad for you to be the one to initiate the divorce? That's a really fascinating question. Uh, I don't know if I've thought it. I haven't thought about that at all. I tend to think that because the top three guys are positionally complementary to who Damian Lillard is, that they would try to roll the dice and give it a shot. I think it also depends on who you end up with. So if it's Paolo Bancaro, I would feel comfortable in saying, all right, let's just throw a little bit of money at a rim protecting center. And now we've got literally top two scoring options from day one in Lillard and Bancaro. We're going to be okay. Um, If it's Chet, who probably needs a little bit more time or patience or Jabari, I'm not sure if I go that route. I think I think it would cause me to say it's probably time to try to move on from Dame and build a roster around one of these younger guys. But I think Paolo is going to be good enough from day one that you can try to win with him, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think I would almost respect it, even if I would doubt it, yeah. um, them trying to make any of those scenarios work because it's almost like the when the Pelicans, after AD had requested a trade, they win the lottery. And there was that thought in the back of your mind, like, what if that made AD stay? And you never see like the incoming rookies making the veterans want to stay or even teams trying to make that work. It's always pivoting into a different timeline. I would just be fascinated regardless of who they drafted if they moved into the top three to see how that would pan out. And I would respect the attempt, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. Dan, you ready to uh, to put your rubber gloves on? Because we're about to wade into the shit right here. Um, we've got uh, we've got to go to Sacramento, and <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where to start with these guys, Dan. Uh, how many coaches have they had over the last decade? It's been 15 years since they've made the playoffs. Uh, more than that, uh, the midseason decision to trade Tyrese Halliburton and Buddy Heald for Sabonis, yet another example of their organizational impatience. It's not that it was the wrong trade to make from a talent perspective, but they constantly field a roster that's devoid of really good young players. And while at the same time is clearly not a playoff group, Fox and Sabonis, they're a good offensive pairing. I like Harrison Barnes. He's a good veteran, but I'll be honest. I I don't know what they're trying to build with this organization, with this roster. So again, help me understand like what's the off season line ahead right here for the Kings. What is your take on what they're trying to build? I think we can expect some more impulse moves from them because as someone who advocated for them to do something, anything, whether it was blow it up and actually rebuild for a change or consolidate and go after that guy, they somehow still straddled the line in between and ended up being aimless. They didn't do anything that was clarifying because as you said, it's the right talent play, but what sort of timeline does Sabonis put you on? What sort of direction does that give you in a Western conference where Fox to bonus and Barnes and Davion Mitchell are not going to probably even compete for a playoff spot. If we're being like not a top six spot in the West for sure. 
And in, in doing so, by the way, like you minimize what was one of the most underrated players in the NBA and Rashawn Holmes. Now you have to move on from him because those two, they didn't really play them together. They can't play together. So that's another question they have to answer. You're also in a position where, and it's, it's amazing we've come this far, which I remember thinking when he was in Dallas, I thought Harrison Barnes was on one of the worst contracts in the league. Kudos to him for doing so well. Now I'm at a point where I'm like, the Kings might need to extend him because I was very impressed i was pretty low on the fox a bonus pairing to start off and then i watched them and i was like oh this can work on offense harrison barnes is so mission critical to making that work as sort of like just looking at the half court geography of his shooting and knowing how if he some people call it sabonis a floor spacer i just i'm not buying into it like his playmaking and ability to put the like no sabonis isn't a floor spacer he's never shot the ball well like outside of 12 feet or whatever it is um so i don't know what they do but I think it's going to be filled with more impulse moves to where are we talking about them moving their pick for just like a, a like a so-so non-star veteran? Uh, is, does Davion Mitchell find his way into trade talks this summer? A lot of people think that their priority needs to be moving De'Aaron Fox because that contract is an albatross. I, one, staunchly disagree. And two, you talk about figuring out a way to like take zero steps forward to take three steps backward. Like what would that actually accomplish for them with Sabonis? They well, they can't in good conscience trade De'Aaron Fox and try to offload that contract, knowing they just traded a young rookie point guard who would have been the heir apparent, right? Like as soon as they got rid of Halliburton, they have to be committed to keeping Fox. And if they don't, then they're the most aimless organization known to mankind. Well, they are that already, probably. So and the other thing is like they didn't need that was also what was puzzling is when you're even thinking about trades, like, and even if it was Ben Simmons over Sabonis, let's just say, just the higher outcome of what Simmons was, I would have probably understood giving Halliburton up. But because it was Sabonis, who was like the most, a very good player, but like the most like middling all-star, like when, like we're talking about a top, what, 35 player? Yeah. That's just such a, and it felt like they made a choice between Fox or Halliburton that didn't need to make like right. I, it wasn't a, it was an invented choice if that is what they were thinking so i do think it's going to be the summer is going to be filled with more moves of a similar equation to where I, I doubt it's like blockbuster level but we're gonna see them if this is like what was that circa 2015 where we really saw them load up on veterans it feels like we're in for another summer of that and i just hope for their fan's sake that maybe they put some actual wings on this team um as they do that well, that's the that's the interesting thing here, right? Like they box themselves in by having three kind of point guards with Fox, Halliburton, and Davion Mitchell. And I think they loved Mitchell from a culture perspective and the defensive toughness that he brings and how he can cover up for some of the mistakes that other non-defenders have on their team. They paid Fox already and pretty much have to keep him. And Halliburton was the expendable one, which again, that's okay if you make an aggressive move to sync up your timeline to become a better team for playoff contention. I don't think they did either. And at the end of the day, they can't turn around and deal Fox after they made that type of decision. But Harrison Barnes, uh, you mentioned, what was it? Uh, offensive geography. Like I am copy and pasting that term for the rest of my life. I love that. Uh, are they better off keeping him on this roster or trying to use him as a veteran to try to get a little bit younger? Because Fox and Sabonis, they're still, you know, mid twenties. Like you can, you can build around them and be a little bit more patient is the best way to getting better wings, trying to deal Harrison Barnes now to a contender. 
I don't think it is because I'm just curious as to, I guess you have Darren Fox under contract, but Sabonis is, he might be extension now, but he has two years left on his deal. You kind of have a little urgency there because what if he just wants to leave uh, before you're really good again? Uh, so, and then are you going to pay him only to still be like in this weird rebuilding phase where you've now maxed out two stars? And so I feel like Harrison Barnes is a piece they need to keep to optimize the current weird indescribable timeline that they put themselves on. I will say if the goal was to get younger, the, then he absolutely should be moved. And he was the answer to that question at the trade deadline as to who could they get the most for on their team? I guess Halliburton, but I just assumed that you would keep the young guard as part of your future. Silly me. Yeah. Yeah. And look, the Kings are going to have a really interesting decision to make with their draft pick. Like they need shooting. They need another wing, somebody that can slide into the two or three spot, play both. Benedict Matherin out of Arizona is a really uh, highly thought of name who's going to be in that range. But when have we known the Kings to kind of make a decision based on something like that? I mean, I don't think Georgios Papayanis is going to be the answer this year, but uh, they are certainly one of the harder teams to predict in terms of how they draft, right? Like they had every connection to Luka Doncic that you could want and they went Marvin Bagley. So I'm not even going to try to throw out names other than that to me. The obvious guy would be Matherin if he's still on the board, just with how they need the fit. I think there's a ton of upside to a guy like Matherin. You never know with Sacramento. Any parting thoughts on the Kings? I'm just curious to see how much they pay Dante DiVincenzo in restricted free agency. They still managed to make him angry, and he was there for like a second because of uh, what they did with his playing time criteria. They sort of just repressed that. So this organization, man. (laughs) Yeah, and and look, DiVincenzo is – Mr. Irrational Confidence in ways that need to be highlighted a little bit more than they they really are, but they did him dirty. There's no doubt about that. Well, somehow we're going to keep wading through the shit instead of backing our way out. The Los Angeles Lakers, Dan, the team that six months ago I predicted would win an NBA championship. Oh, no, you were one of them. I was one of them. Oh, how the turntables. I mean, it's important to note that the Lakers don't, have a draft pick this year, right? So in the way that we frame this discussion, this isn't about what can they do to really raise their, you know, their ceiling competitively for next year through the draft. It's really about how do they wade through all of their issues with an aging core, aging role players around them, no draft equity to really be able to to do things with. Like there are a few pick swaps they can make. Personally, that doesn't amount much to me because there's such a wide array of outcomes for this team over the next few years. You don't know what you're getting in a, a pick swap with them. Um, I just, you know, they got to make, they got to hire a coach too. Um, there's so much fluidity to the situation. Nobody really knows how things are going to go, but they still have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And that has to count for something. So I, I guess, I guess the best way to start with any of this is, is this team still a, an appealing destination or a, a, a team that if you're another star or another aging veteran around the league that you would want to try to come to and join and say, if we run it back and they're smarter next year, maybe we can latch on to being a playoff team around LBJ and a hand, uh, excuse me, a healthy Anthony Davis. If I'm a player, if I'm even a head coaching prospect, like I need to see what they're going to be able to do with Russell Westbrook because the team is just so like poorly constructed that it's almost impressive how poorly constructed it is because it was so obvious in the moment. And this isn't even about necessarily Russell Westbrook himself, who clearly was stubborn 
it seemed like with his you know unwillingness to change his usage and it, like not be unhappy about it. Uh, the bigger thing is you allocated so many resources to one spot in your rotation and you have no other supplementary tools to carve out depth other than to, can we divest this $47 million player into three or four? Because you became so dependent on these minimum guys, most of whom are one-dimensional, most of whom were past their prime, and they were shoehorned into these outsized roles. And it's hard for me to think there would be anything better than more of the same next year if all they have to do is their mid-level exception and then more minimums at this point. And yeah, they were burned because Kendrick Nunn didn't play, but like Kendrick Nunn wasn't going to materially change the the fate of this team. And so you need to figure out a way to carve out actual depth on this roster. And you mentioned it with the picks, and we talked about this in the direct messages when I was bouncing trade ideas off of you. I don't, I honestly don't know, even if they were willing to throw every pick and swap that they could, which is two swaps, 26 and 28, and then two first, 27 and 29 on the table. I don't know which teams are biting on that because even the first swap is so far away. No, I would argue maybe one or two front offices, maybe three have the type of job security where they could envision being the, the front office that makes that pick. And so it really puts you into this conundrum. And it's also, I don't think moving Russ is a simply, could it be addition by subtraction? If you're getting literally like a net zero back in return, perhaps, but if you have to like grease the wheels by still including a pick or a swap or, or both just to get rid of him. Now those are assets you can't use um, to actually do things to upgrade your roster. So they need shooting and they need defense. Like that's the easiest answer in the world to surround LeBron James and Anthony Davis with shooters and guys who try hard on defense. The Lakers literally did the exact opposite. Like, can we stop and just th- like, they did the exact opposite of that. And I don't know, look, is there, th- is there a team that's in love with town Horton Tucker? I doubt it. Do they get lucky using their mid-level exception? They're the Lakers, so maybe their mini MLE turns into something that it wouldn't for another team. But sh- they need to f- like find a way to not just get rid of Russell Westbrook, but to actually turn Russell Westbrook into players, plural, that are like even pivoting to John Wall, if you could. I don't think that actually the like, John Wall might be a negligible upgrade next to AD and LeBron. Might be. We haven't seen him play in like 80 years. So that's why this team is so, yes, they have LeBron and they have AD. And if they're both going to stay healthy, and I know that's a big if with Anthony Davis, you can like your chances, but you still need a supporting cat. We just saw it. And I don't know what team is going to come in and give them players that they can actually use in exchange for, for Russell Westbrook. So just let's set the board right here for mechanisms that they have to improve the roster. They could trade first round picks in 27 and 29 and do swaps in 26 and 28. Is that right? That's correct. Unless I'm mistaken there, but new Orleans can defer 24 to 25. So yeah, they can swap in 26 for sure. Okay. So with that, they do not have a first round pick in the 2022 NBA draft because of the stepping rule. They have to keep their 2023 first rounder. Is that right? Yeah, which also is that like a swap that's owed? I, I mean, I just assume all their draft picks are gone. But yeah, they would have to keep it until the draft is is over. So they can't use that at all this year. Um, they have the mini mid-level exception. And which they we know they're concerned about luxury tax bills. Otherwise, Alex Caruso would still be on the team. So that's just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Yep. And then how many uh, free agents or contracts coming off the books are there with the Lakers this summer? 
Um, everyone except LeBron, Russ, AD, Kendrick Nunn, and Talon Horton Tucker. I assume they're going to bring back Austin Reeves. So that's six guys I would bill as under contract, which gives you another six to nine roster spots that you need to fill out. So theoretically, if they get the right role players in there and around this group, they can retool the roster to actually fit around some of the guys that they already have. The issue is the combination of LeBron AD and Russell Westbrook is so damn expensive that pretty much all of that has to be on the minimum or the, the mini MLE, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's looking bleak. And, and look, Dan, we've talked, you mentioned, we've been going back and forth about the Lakers in the DMS for the last several days here. Um, if I were in charge of an NBA team, there is no scenario or package that the Lakers could put together that would make me consider acquiring Russell Westbrook. You're just, there isn't to eat that salary that what they have just isn't enough for me to really give them back anything of value. I mean, how do we need to be looking at Westbrook? Is this trade him and picks to get value? Is it just trade him to get him off the books and try to find a, a fresh start? Or do they have to eat something somehow worse of a, an asset than, than Westbrook to really get him off right now? I think their pathway is to sort of, they need to saddle themselves with additional risk down the line. Whereas there's, if there's a team that has someone with two or three years left on their a player's deal that they don't want, or maybe two players in that instance, and they're looking to not keep Russell Westbrook, they wave him, buy him out, whatever, um, or tell him to take his ball and go home and just keep him on the books. Um, sort of what OKC did for half season of, of Al Horford. Uh, you do that so that you can reset your finances, whether you want to use it in free agency or for future trades, you just want, that financial purge. And I, I do believe that there are probably very few teams that are going to be interested in that because one, there really aren't a ton of long-term deals in the league anymore. They're either superstar signing them, in which case you don't want to trade them, or there's just a lot of non-stars who are on these two and three-year deals where it's almost they play through one year and you can already see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then there are teams, I think Charlotte's been bandied about. If there was a way for them to get off of Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier in the trade, which I'm sure there would be, what does cap space do for a team like Charlotte? Um, at the season like it it doesn't so the team that i actually think about and i mentioned it to you if i were the knicks i would 100 percent give up julius randall evan fournier take your pick of the third like if you want derrick rose you want alec burks you want nerlens noel you want two of those guys we'll figure out a way to make it work and if the lakers need to send them draft compensation they're a team that can talk themselves into cap space more financial flexibility down the line being valuable but like it's almost a list of one because they have Julius Randle's four-year extension kicking in. They have Evan Fournier with two guaranteed years left on his deal. There are very few situations where teams have that many undesirable deals. And with the Lakers, even, you know, I, when I was talking to people about that framework, they're like, well, the Lakers have to give them at least one first round pick. And I'm like, if I'm the Knicks, I do that in a heartbeat. I might not even need the picks because I think that Julius Randle might be about to start one of the three single worst contracts in the league next season. So would the Lakers even want him? I think he's a much better fit, especially when you're looking at running units without LeBron on the court. Um, he is a better shooter than Russell Westbrook is, has ever been. But it's, if you, like, I can't, people think that you thought my Knicks logic was flimsy and I can't come up with a team beyond them that I think can really even, or should talk, because we know the Knicks won't. They don't think in those terms, but they're like the only team that I can really talk myself into for a rush trade. I, I have no idea what to do um, for the Lakers right now. Um, before we move, move on from that, like uh, let's just quickly, New Orleans, 
awesome showing right now against Phoenix. They've got a ton of really intriguing young, young talent. Like they show the value in just hitting on good role players in the draft. And they've done that this year with three rookies that are coming in and playing important minutes on their, you know, on their playoff team. They're going to have a lottery pick that they are getting from the, the Lakers this year. And I think that they're a super intriguing team to watch next year. What that does with Zion Williamson, like there's a lot of drama still to sift through in New Orleans. But as far as them being the recipients of this pick, I think that that could push them into a really intriguing territory, which as it relates to all these teams we talk about today, makes it harder to claw your way into the playoffs because now one of those teams that was on the outside and earned their way into the play-in is going to most likely stay in that playoff contention mode next year. Not to mention the team that we'll get to at the very end of this, the Los Angeles Clippers, because they're going to finally be healthy with two superstars. So like the West is going to be much better again next year, which makes what Sacramento is doing, which makes what the Lakers are doing, what Portland may be doing, trying to turn things around quickly with Dame incredibly challenging. Yeah. That's a fantastic point. I wasn't going to ask you, is there someone if they land up in like the number eight range that new Orleans can take, that would help them right away. I think the sentiment's going to be people want them to trade that pick for like an established rim protector or maybe more shooting on that team. But they're also in a weird spot where like Zion's still on his rookie scale. Like you do have some of the youngsters still on this team. What do you do with that pick? Yeah. I, I like Benedict Matherin from Arizona. Uh, again, I just, I value shooting and movement shooting, good athleticism and defense and somebody who can score a little bit off the bounce. Uh, he fits in what they do. I think that the piece of having a little bit more of a movement shooter continues to open up the floor for a Zion, for a Jonas Valanciunas when they you know try to score through him in those moments when when he's really playing the five and he's long enough to be good defensively. So I, I would go Matherin, um, but again, it all depends on who's on the board and what happens with Zion because if he doesn't, you know, conversation for another day with Zion. But yeah, uh, for sure. The reason I wanted to bring up the West getting more challenging next year with some of those teams probably increasing their win totals and, and looking like they're going to be legit is because the San Antonio Spurs are kind of a unique piece in that puzzle. Went 34 and 48 this year, and no one knows how many years Greg Popovich has left, but I have a feeling he wants to get this group into the playoffs and see what he can do to really develop a lot of their young guys. And I like the young guys that they have, and they continue to overachieve with. DeJounte Murray took the step forward towards being an all-star. Keldon Johnson and Devin Vassell are really impactful wings. I think Josh Primo has a ton of promise for how he played in the G League and some of the flashes he showed with the big league Spurs. They got three picks in this year's draft, a lot of selection and two in the 20s, and a couple other young pieces of, of interest. Their front court could use a little bit more more help. And that's no disrespect to one of the league's most underrated players in Jakob Pertl. Um, But the, the Spurs have a reputation for not shaking things up a lot in trades, right? They are that patient group that drafts and develops and really invests in their young guys. So Dan, with the players that are already on this roster, are the Spurs best served by staying the course and continuing to develop? Or should they be a little bit more aggressive in saying, we got three picks and a bunch of young guys. Now might be the time to be more of a player on the trade market. I think it's probably time for them to be more of a player on the trade market. If Greg Popovich wants to see this team into the playoffs, I do think given the state of the Western conference though, as you just mentioned, 
it probably makes more logistical sense if you're throwing Greg Popovich's future out the window to stay the course or even at least like try to take some bigger swings in the draft because I love Devin Vassell. Uh, I love Keldon Johnson. I'm a big fan of Josh Prego. Like there's a lot of like squish and wiggle to his game when he's off the dribble. I just don't know if any of those guys profile as a co-star. I don't even know if you can say that DeJounte Murray's the type of 10-pole star you need to reach that next level in the Western Conference. And you need to find that guy somehow. If there's a team that can do it while drafting in the lottery in the 20s, yes, it's the Spurs, but I would hazard it's infinitely harder to do that if you're just constantly drafting in the mid to late first round. And so I almost wonder, like, no, I don't think they're going to move Murray, but is it like they're, they feel like they're building and not rebuilding. And I wonder, does the Derek White trade sort of auger and openness to lean deeper into a rebuild? I just also don't know what that looks like if you're going to keep DeJounte Murray, which, I mean, I would. He's he's fantastic. Is there, like, some sort of pick consolidate? Like, could they make a play where it's they have those three firsts and they're willing to part with one of their non-Murray core pieces to move up really high in the draft or get maybe a, a younger flyer from another team that's already in the NBA? that might be the route that I would consider for them. And if they're going to keep and use all their picks, like I'm taking at least one monstrous swing for the fences here. Yeah. I certainly agree with that, uh, that they need to take a, a swing on a more than anything on a guy who can be a 20 or 25 point per game scorer eventually in the NBA. Cause that's the one thing this team is really missing, which is an alpha get my own bucket from anywhere on the floor, three level scorer type of guy. Like if, if they can find a way to get Paolo Bancaro and, and end up with the top pick, whether it's through luck in the lottery or through trade and consolidation, I think that's an unbelievable fit for San Antonio. Like everything that they would need is really right there falling in their lap. But I don't know where those guys are outside of Bancaro and like maybe Shaden Sharp, who's the mystery man in this draft class because he enrolled at Kentucky and then sat there and clapped on the bench for two and a half months and declared for the draft. And some people say, he has an incredible upside. He's a late riser in high school to where he was outside the top 100, you know, as a junior. And then all of a sudden now he's getting talked about as being a potential top five pick. That's a lot to try to trade up for, or, you know, hit your wagon to. I don't know if, if the Spurs would necessarily do that, but all right. Scoring is their biggest need beyond that. What's, what's most important for this team to add is it another big, is it a, a true four? Cause Kelvin Johnson might be a little bit undersized for that. Is it more shooting? Like wh- what does this team really need if they can't get a top overall score? Yeah. I, it would be nice to see him get a combo big, maybe someone who could do the four and the five there, or maybe just an option that has more like pop to his offensive game. than and I'm talking about stretch or even vertical pop than a Jakob Pertl, who we know is one of the league's best rim protectors. Do they think they already have that guy in Zach Collins um, you know, he showed some nice moments after he got healthy this year. I don't think it's him, but that would be a really, I think that would probably be their biggest need aside from sort of the dynamic offensive engine type scorer. Uh, ironically, and I feel like this used to be a problem Spurs. they never had enough like wings and swingmen. And now they just have like this surfeit of them. So it's, it's definitely not that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And, and, uh, again, a fascinating team because I think it's going to really test their self-identity right are they able to accurately project where they stand in the western conference and say if we're really going to make a push over the next couple years to bully our way into the playoffs we either need to be certain in our long-term development of the guys that we already have nail this draft or maybe consider making a little bit more of an aggressive play to get that number one option here in town 
Yeah. Dan, there's one team left that didn't make the playoffs this year that we got to cover. It's the Los Angeles Clippers, 42 and 40. And that seems a little bit miraculous considering all of the injuries that they had to deal with this year and the guys that were in and out of the lineup. They do not own their first round pick this year. It's going to be heading to Oklahoma City. The Clippers are primed to make a major leap, though, because they're going to have healthy Kawhi, healthy Paul George. And somehow Reggie Jackson has found the fountain of youth. The rest of this roster is a ton of really interesting kind of wing forward types. Uh, shout out to the Clippers for finding Isaiah Hartenstein and, and turning him into a solid player. And I think Ty, uh, Ty Lue is one of the most underrated coaches in the league. Like he can out coach a lot of guys in a playoff series. Uh, how do they improve the roster this summer to turn them into being a championship contender next year? I'd be curious if, the I don't even want to call it a flat out emergence, but now you have Robert Covington, uh, Amir Coffey kind of coming out of the scene this season as well. When you know you're going to have Kawhi and Paul George, you have Batum, he has a player option. I'm assuming he really wants to be in LA because he went back on what was a cheaper deal than he would have gotten elsewhere. They have like these wing and bodies to spare. Can we get like more of a, a game managing floor general in there? It's not as big as a concern if Kawhi Leonard is back and Paul George remains healthy for the whole season. They address some of their rim pressure issues by having Norman Powell there as well. You already mentioned Reggie Jackson, but like if you're willing to even move a Terrence Mann or a Marquis Moore, uh, Marcus Morris Sr., like what is out there? Like would that be like a framework that you're considering if the Jazz blow it up and you want to take a, a shot at Mike Conley? I know he played, he's played really poorly in the, the playoff series against the Mavericks, but like that would be, you know, theoretically like an ideal fit for, for their offense because I do still feel like they lack that element. Outside of that, uh, unless they're super confident that like they're going to keep Zubats long-term, that uh, Hartenstein's going to come back next year because he's a free agent, they probably could stand to have another actual big. They have the small ball lineup set more so than ever if they're going to bring back Robert Covington as well. Like that, I still just can't believe that like Robert Covington to the Clippers was like Danny Green being attached to the Kawhi Leonard trade for Toronto. That's like the vibes I was getting from it. Um, so that would be their second largest need. But a Clippers team at full strength, if you told me that Paul George and Kawhi Leonard miss fewer than 17 games each next year and that they're available for the playoffs, you're not going to have to make that strong of a case to me to convince me that they should be the title favorites because their roster is that well-balanced and tantalizing overall that almost any upgrade they make is it's going to be futzing and fiddling on the margins or it just winds up being gravy because I don't even know that they need any sort of tangible upgrade or appreciable upgrade to be the title favorite at full strength. It's funny how much you are, you are speaking my language right now, Dan Favalli. Um, I, I am in on this Clippers team next year because this echoes a little bit of what Golden State went through last year, where some of your stars are injured and not there consistently. And the young pups that you have drafted, developed, invested in, some of the guys that are on the margins and the fringes start to figure out if they can be NBA players that belong on a court in playoff time. And the residual effect of that is what we're seeing with a Jordan pool this year in Golden State, that you just add that one more piece internally. Now it takes the pressure off of the front office to have to go out there and make that swing for the fences move to really turn into a contender again. And that's where, you know, they made some really smart decisions in getting Covington and Norman Powell. I think Norman Powell is a really good pickup for them. Um, Terrence Mann is one guy who over the last year and a half 
has a lot of intrigue. I like Brandon Boston Jr. quite a bit. I don't know if those guys have more trade value or impact on the Clippers in a role that, you know, LA would want to use them in on a title team, but you at least know you have something so that if we're sitting here nine months from now and it's early February next year and the Clippers are battling for one of the top two or three seeds in the West, they can use one of those two guys because they have the sample from this year to say, now's the time to really go all in and, and make the decisions that we have to. So Projecting out, I'm right there with you. I think the Clippers have as good of a chance as anybody of coming out the West next year with the asterisk of health, obviously. Uh, that's that's kind of how it is with everybody. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that you see them as a championship contender in the same way that I do. I guess it's, it would be fair to question, like, Kawhi's coming back from a partially torn ACL. It's not nothing. That's probably the most serious injury he had. I mean, I guess we the, towards the talent of his tenure with the Spurs, there was a – that was all foot stuff, right? That feels like a million years ago at this point. So that's something significant to keep in mind. But Kawhi, if he's just available for the playoffs, I mean, if, if Kawhi and Paul George are available at the same time in the playoffs, like my, my God, like it's hard to want a better one-two punch in a postseason setting than those two. Yeah, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, Dan, as always, you are fantastic. And my mentor, I always appreciate you coming on, bouncing ideas off each other in the DMs. For all the people who don't follow you, who don't know your work and aren't familiar with everything, let them know where they can find you and what you have going on in the near future. Yeah, check me out on Twitter where I promote all my work at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm over at Bleacher Report full-time, so you can check out my writing there. And also check out the Hardwood Knox podcast, spelled exactly as it sounds, Hardwood Knox. I am rambling, ranting, and raving over there a couple of times a week. A fantastic pod that I've uh, been fortunate enough to be on before. Dan does a fantastic job running it and was more than anything, a great and gracious guest with us here over our last two podcasts. Dan, thank you so much. And for all of our listeners, appreciate you spending your, your afternoons and days and evenings and mornings and whenever you're listening with us here. And a reminder to always hashtag ban the take foul. <laughs>